we call the growth strategy in particular sort of a system positive lens on investing because it's not just investing in companies that are thriving in that transition, but companies that are really driving it. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Lila Preston, head of Generation Growth Equity. Generation Growth Equity is a part of the larger Generation Investment Management, an investment management firm founded in 2004 by former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and Goldman Sachs Asset Management Head David Blood, with a stated focus on sustainable investment options. They now manage roughly $40 billion. Generation Growth Equity invests globally in growth stage private companies with proven technology and commercial traction run by talented mission-driven management teams. They take active minority positions in these companies that are driving broad-based system-positive change. They're now investing out of their fourth fund, a $1.7 billion vehicle. Lila joined Generation in 2004. Previously, she was a director of finance and development at Volunteer Match in San Francisco and was also a Fulbright Fellow in Southern Chile. She received a BA in English and Latin American Studies from Stanford University and an MBA from the London Business School. She serves on the board of Nature's Find and as a board observer for SIBO Technologies, Optora, and Pivot Bio. She's also on the board of advisors at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and is a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. In this episode, we talked about what she means by system positive as a filter for their investments, why sustainability is at the core of their strategy for boosting investor returns, which risks they're willing to take, that is no tech risk or no product market fit risk either. We covered how they developed the conviction to invest 50 to $150 million per company, the breadth of their sustainability research and what parts of that they share out to the world each year, the need to stay in your lane when investing and let others do the same, and this works out as well, at generation with multiple strategies under that same umbrella. We talked about example investments such as MCOPA, which started out as an energy access play focused on solar energy mostly in developing countries, but grew into a financing vehicle to improve households in Africa in new and surprising ways. We covered the massive opportunities for biology to replace chemistry, such as with their pivot bioinvestment. We also covered the biggest challenges that their CEOs in their portfolios face, the role of life cycle assessments to assess net impacts, both positive and negative, the distinction between being proactive and reactive in investment and really in career development more broadly, 
what her Fulbright work in Chile taught her, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoyed, and please give Lila and Generation Investment Management a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. P.S. If you or a friend uh, might be the CEO or founder of a growth stage company in climate tech, sustainability, or renewable energy, at Entrepreneurs for Impact, we run the largest peer group program in North America for people like you. And I thought I'd just read off maybe a working version of uh, a manifesto of sorts describing who we are and really who's, who's in this group. So here goes. For some people, their work is their mission. It's not a job or career or just any old company they're building. And Entrepreneurs for Impact, our members simultaneously pursue audacious climate goals and profits. Big problems, as they say, with big opportunities, not, not sacrifice. People tell them the odds are stacked against them. And in response, they say, cool, what's, uh, what's on my calendar for today? They know the outsized benefits of doing hard things intentionally. They've won Time Magazine's Best Inventions of the Year Award, raised $100 million on science projects, and sold ventures to Fortune 500 companies. They've read thousands of pages of history during sabbaticals after selling companies, learned sales skills as street musicians, and conducted research in Central America's rainforest. And collectively, they're building $10 billion of value for climate solutions, rallying thousands of women in climate tech, investing in climate line portfolios worth billions of dollars and targeting the removal of many tons of GHGs from the atmosphere. They're choosing optimism over pessimism, not, not easy to do, innovation over the status quo, also not easy to do, and solutions over problems. They know the best way to predict the future is, of course, to create it. Easy to say. In this community, we're building our brain trust, our personal advisory board, and our tribe so we can do what seems impossible. Tackle climate change through entrepreneurship. All right, insert applause and so forth for these pioneers in the climate tech and renewables space. All right, that's it. Enjoy the show. Lila Preston, head of Generation Growth Equity. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. Great to see you. So we we have all sorts of listeners, all sorts of backgrounds, some deep in you know climate or finance for a very long time. But what a fun, refreshing place to start, which is to say your path went from English lit and Latin American studies to, you know, what folks would know you today as a, you know, uh, growth equity investor with your year alls fourth fund at $1.7 billion. So for all you liberal studies folks out there, right, super obvious path to managing gobs and money for a system positive company. You know? Yeah, what I'd like to say is it's, it's always clear in the rear view, the steps yeah. you took. It's never clear along the way, and that is perfectly fine. Yes. Wonderful. All right, so maybe let's kind of hop into, I, re I referenced this phrase, system positive. Uh, I know on your old website, you also talk about, look, folks, there's a revolution happening, a good kind, lots of revolutions happening, but a sustainability revolution. So defining, I think, maybe what that means, maybe what both of those mean, perhaps, in the context of investing 
look, not not small dollars globally. Great. And I think for for context, folks may or may not know that Generation was set up almost 20 years ago now as a dedicated pure play sustainable investment management platform. So think about the big idea at the beginning was to put sustainability, sustainability research, sustainability insight at the core of an investment process with the view that it was the very best way to deliver performance for our clients. And we manage money on behalf of you know, large institutions globally. And it was this sort of rewiring a traditional investment process by recognizing that indeed sustainability was shaping every pocket of our economy and that that transition was early stages at the time in 2004, you know, three, four, five, but has actually gained significant momentum. We call the growth strategy in particular sort of a system positive lens on investing because it's not just investing in companies that are thriving in that transition, but companies that are really driving it. And just importantly, because I know you have a deep climate audience, is that we see the connections that are inextricable between climate, what we call planetary health, people health, so the, the health outcomes, as well as financial inclusion. So effectively, sort of three sides of the same coin. And certainly that all has to exist within the context of, you know, a planet that we inhabit and the nature that we rely upon. And so, you know, the big idea early was that this would deliver insight and we've now started in the public markets and moved into private markets and have been kind of running a series of strategies to demonstrate that across, you know, across sectors. You know, when you talk about sustainability as a way to really invest better in a smarter way, I think it's easier for folks probably who don't listen to this podcast to say the opposite, right? And we we see this, I mean, certainly we see this in the U.S. where there's this I think mostly unfounded, you know, anti-ESG, you know, kind of play afoot. I don't like, how does Generation respond, I guess, broadly or specifically perhaps to those who would question, wait a second, are you being a fiduciary if you're considering non-financial information as you make your investment decisions? So we think of sustainability on two main levels. And and the first is, you know, what a company does. What are the products and services that a company sells? And as they sell more of those products and services, whether they be software or widgets, that we can ladder up a contribution to a sustainable future using a set of indicators, right? We can use tools in our toolkit to measure the impact of those products and services. So those that's a, a business that's driving impact with their revenue growth and profitability. But at the same time, you have to have a sustainable organization, sort of how a company operates, not just what a company does, but the organization and the culture and the institution and the systems and processes behind those products and services. And so we think about, you know, why would you not use every tool in your tool belt? You know, call it non-financial. I actually think these are financial drivers. It's just like way in which they get categorized has led to a fair amount of confusion in the market. But why wouldn't you use every piece of information and insight available to determine as a company grows, is it solving a problem in the world? Is it system positive? And then how a company operates, is it built a sustainable engine room behind those products and services such that it will be around in 10, 20, you know, 50 years? And that would be very consistent with fiduciary duty. It would drive maximum economic value, and it would ultimately ensure that there is a durability to a company's earnings. Yeah, there's a fun headline, which I like to to show in, in slides. I think it's 
Christopher Ailman at like the CIO at Cowsters. I might be getting the name wrong, but I think it's that's who it is. When the headline is is like um basically we see four decades of alpha generation investing essentially to mitigate climate risk or or capture opportunities in this shift to a low carbon world, which I think somewhere else is what agrees with what you just said, right? I think the other the other part of that is look, if, if some investors don't think that sustainability information is financially material, ignore it, right? And both, At your peril. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, th- it isn't like having it is better than not having it. If you choose not to use it, investors choose to ignore all sorts of information all the time. Uh, but to kind of uh, balk at disclosure broadly, right? That seems like, um, I guess, overkill, perhaps. I think about like, you know, will the SEC have any luck getting GHG disclosure, you know, passed? And if so, is it scope one and scope two, maybe hopefully scope three? Anyway, that kind of pushback where it's like, well, if you don't want to, to use that data in your underwriting, to your point, at your peril, but why, why get all in all up in arms over just disclosing information? And there's a lot of work that's happened. Again, we sit over a global investment management firm, right? So we have offices in London with a presence in San Francisco. And so we look around the world and certainly developments around the International Sustainability Standards Board, you know, look at what's happening in California with respect to disclosure guidelines for carbon emissions. I do think that there is a host of innovation that's taking place. And I think in particular, looking at what where kind of Europe has landed and pulling together the indicators of what what and how and trying to build uh, better investor disclosure and and ultimately harmonizing so that there's not so much duplication, not so much confusion. One of our colleagues, uh, Clara Barbie, has been really instrumental in pulling the kind of consortium and, and, and consolidation around that. And we're really supportive of, you know, international standards. So I, I have a sense for how you may answer the next question, but I, w- I want to ask it, which is, I think we've seen some asset managers move away from, you know, terms like sustainability or ESG because of the headlines. I think others, not so much. And it, it reminds me of this expression, maybe relevant, maybe not, but love me or hate me, there's no money in the middle. And I could see where, you know, folks probably like Generation who say, no, no, we're not, we're not running away from this. This is our core thesis. It doesn't hurt one's capital raising, in fact, to do the opposite. It said, oh, you, you're one of the committed. You, you truly understand the way this connects to value. And it, it boosts the, the assets with which you're trusted to make investment decisions. I think this is about a perspective on, you know, again, what drives the most value. And we put, again, sustainability at the core. And we started practicing, what, how do you do that? How do you do that in roadmap research. We've spent a lot of time understanding all the market dynamics. We have 380 roadmaps as a firm to try to kind of translate trends into business models that we might like and management teams that we respect and admire, whether it's in the public markets or the private side, so that we can build relationships or, you know, build positions over time. And that's kind of premise is that we are looking at the world from a different lens. And I think that lens is, it's who we are. Again, it's all we do. We don't have you know, non-sustainability funds. And so it's just like, it's like a, it's a full body kind of commitment. And then it enables you to bring the lens into everything that you do. So I feel really, I mean, that's like a lucky opportunity um, 
I'm now been a generation for 19 of the 20 years, but just wow. to start early on in your career, I was a public equities analyst on the consumer side, but that there was this enablement and and space to creatively think about how the world is shifting and shaping and what does that mean in terms of both risk management but opportunity capture and certainly when you move into the private markets which we've now been in for upwards of 15 years it's the you know it's the speedboats it's the drivers of of you know market transitions right whether it's in sustainable mobility or it's in healthier food systems or it's in you know decoupling energy use from compute i mean a whole host of pockets of the market that are really inflecting because of a combination of cost down curves consumer demand shifts uh, regulatory sh- um maybe some tailwinds now but there weren't always tailwinds right so this is mm. more of a recent phenomenon and then ultimately you know planetary constraints and and messages from the you know, environment that we inhabit that things must shift and i think cons- that comes back to consumer demand again and it impacts mm. that whole circle mm-hmm. well let's let's make it more granular for folks so what's the box if you will what's the kind of stage I don't know, maybe size, you know, company, pick any metrics that are relevant here. Yeah. It fits your all's investment profile. So the growth strategy was first launched in 2008. So Generation as a Firm was launched in 2004. So starting in the public markets and then moving into private in that first wave of certainly thinking about the opportunity set to leverage all this research we were doing into sustainability, into private markets, and now, fast forward, we're on our fourth fund, which is, as you mentioned, $1.7 billion. It's called the Sustainable Solutions Fund. It started, the genesis of the fund was to focus on businesses that, as they grow, contribute to system-positive future or sustainable future, and that we are seeking to catch them at, in a market expansion and penetration stage. So this is not venture. This is not tech risk. This is not product market fit. This is really when companies are hitting, you know, a, a have built an engine room that is understandable. It is, you can use past data and analytics to model it. You can look at uh, unit economics. You can understand the full ROI. Maybe they have, you know, close to 30 million of run rate revenues. And now it's penetration and market kind of execution risk that we're comfortable taking. So our checks today range between you know, 50 and $150 million, maybe a little bit smaller, a little bit bigger on both ends. But we'll have, you know, 15 to 18 investments per fund. And so that means we're taking sizable minority growth positions. These are tech-enabled businesses, and we do skew towards more capital light, as well as, I'd say, moated, enduring platforms that we think have a chance to be standalone enterprises. And we will be doing everything that we can, again, leveraging our heritage from the public markets as well, to build sustainable platforms beneath those products and services. That means that we have an extraordinary network of advisors. We leverage those research roadmaps to drive value for our companies. We curate roundtable discussions to tackle what are the thorniest issues that are holding back market adoption rates for certain new solutions. And I think we learned early on that this is a superior, these need to be superior value propositions. So these companies not need need to come up with better products and services. So this is long gone are the days where you're accepting that people would pay more for, you know, green products. I think that was eclipsed actually after the clean tech, you know, first boom bust is that these need to be standalone. And then a notable switch that we made or expansion that we undertook was the move from 
climate solutions to sustainable solutions. We've often talked about this, that we see climate, health, and inequality, again, as inextricably linked. And so we move to broaden the mandate such that we could look at companies from different angles. I often give the example of, of MCOPA, which is an investment that's back in our second fund, which is based in Africa. It's a company that started in the off-grid solar market, selling you know solar systems to homes that were not serviced by the grid because it was cheaper than their daily kerosene budget for lighting and energy. And it was also enabled them to enter the banking system because it enabled micropayments over a year that ultimately established a credit history. And then finally, it displaced the you know, kerosene and in particulate uh, matter pollution inside homes. And so it had these aspects of this business model. And fast forward, it has really become a really scalable financial inclusion platform extending from initially solar systems into, you know, mobile telephones and other, you know, white goods into the home that help enable and, and lift people's quality of, of life and obviously, you know, economic and business opportunities. And so this is sort of a, an example of where, you know, you have to look at things from three different angles. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's one, but we think that that interrelationship and that debate and making time and space for it in an investment process is incredibly valuable. And so, you know, today it's planetary health, people health, financial inclusion, growth stage, you know, check sizes that are really indicative of a market penetration and adoption risks uh, that we're willing to take because we study those markets pretty deeply. Yeah, the the Incoba example is a great one. I recall being on the ground in like Ethiopia with with D-Light or in India with with Greenlight Planet and and hearing like, look, we're not stopping. We're not stopping with the solar lantern, then it goes the solar home system, and then it goes all sorts of other things these these homes, these families need and want. And as you see, now there's a, a version of a credit score, right? The ability, the ability to kind of underwrite these these homes and families that didn't exist before. And so now what else can they yeah. qualify, essentially? And that's part of this, you know, the system thinking for us is thinking about, you know, first order and second order effects of a business model. You know, the, the initial business disruption, again, has to have a superior product or service, but then it opens up another opportunity. They can move into shifting markets more significantly. I mean, even, you know, take DocuSign, which was a company that we arrived at through our roadmap research into paperless office, right? So, you know, trying to dematerialize waste in offices. And and actually what we found was that the ability to digitally manage documents, not only avoided printing, which is important, but the more significant second order effect was not shipping single documents on an overnight, you know, FedEx plane and not requiring putting a piece of paper in a facility for the next 40 years. It has, mm. you know, HVAC cooling systems. Like actually there's an entire better way of this. Again, talk about superior pro value proposition, a better way to do document management. And as long as it's trustworthy and high quality, it can change behavior and it has first order and second order effects. Actually then engaging with a company like DocuSign and well, how do you measure that? And how would you start to quantify that, you know, first displacement of paper, but then more importantly, displacement of, of a broader energy footprint. But those are the types of dialogues that we'll have with companies in our engagement. Yeah, I like that thinking, the first order, second order, uh, et cetera. Uh, the impacts can can stack, can be bigger than what what one may think of as just as the first order effects, kind of inside inside the boundary. Maybe tell us some stories. I don't know a couple of other 
companies in the portfolio, perhaps what made them stand out and what kind of got you all to a yes, perhaps? Within the coverage universe, I've spent a lot of time on food systems and thinking about health as well as agriculture and what's required to shift us towards a less you know, carbon intensive and, and resource intensive food and ag system. And so we started work back in 2000 and probably eight or nine on the role of biology and displacing chemistry in field, but also, you know, in, in other areas of, of um, agriculture. And so that wave of research has been updated over many, many years. We have a company called Pivot Bio, which is really focused on displacing synthetic nitrogen and indeed over time eliminating the need for it by leveraging what is a crop nutrition platform with technology that can harness the power of nature to deliver nitrogen to plants. So effectively think about this as a way to address a chemical load that is fairly inefficient. I mean, synthetic nitrogen is over a $190 billion industry and only 40 to 60% of it actually gets delivered to the plant. There's quite a bit of waste in the system. It's actually Again, that that waste means that there's economic loss oh, yeah. uh, for the grower, um, for obviously economic impact for land and soils and waterways and downstream, not to mention um, emissions. And so I think that this is an example of a company that's using, again, microbes to displace, to deliver actually nitrogen to the root source. And I think that's a um, an innovation that is one of many kind of like companies that it can be part of this sustainable transition in the agriculture system. Um, you know, today they replace 40 pounds of synthetic fertilizer per acre, and that's sort of, I think, 20% of a far- farmer's uh, synthetic nitrogen budget. They have ambitions, again, to continue to deliver more and more um, nutrition solutions. And that's for a, a more, again, predictable, drives farmer profitability, safer and more sustainable solution that hits all of those angles. You're not asking for concessions and you're not asking for massive behavior change and you're not asking for any impact on kind of the overall profitability for the grower. And so those are the examples where that flywheel really works well. Mm -hmm. You know, we've spent a lot of time in areas related to, you know, mobility in the past and and adoption of of electrification. Um, We've looked at circular economy. Uh, I'll give another example of a few companies that are enabling circular business models in very different market segments. So a company like Vestiaire Collective, and Vestiaire is enabling um, reuse and resale in the luxury segment. Uh, and then there's a company called Backmarket, which is also enabling reuse models for electric goods. So think of, you know, tablets and phones and computers and such. And so when these companies displace the, you know, new kind of new and then use and then retire models, they keep products in circulation. I think um, back market has documented, you know, a million tons of aggreg- aggregated carbon emissions removal from the circular model. And again, much like when we gave the example of Pivot or of uh, DocuSign, you have to net out the footprint. You know, you have to use life cycle assessment to be rigorous and net out the supply chain impacts that in- it are still inherent in this business model but be able to displace emissions and waste and keep items out of landfill, uh, which is meaningful from a customer value proposition and also economic better value 
for a consumer to, again, buy used versus new. And likewise, in in fashion, it's, you know, one of those industries where products are made to be durable. Uh, they're very high quality. They absolutely are fit for purpose for multiple, you know, reuse. And so making it seamless, very, very consumer friendly and almost as good as new, almost aspirationally um, lodged in a consumer's brain as like the the default. Why, why go new when you can have this high quality mm. used experience? So those are business models where I think, again, they've tackled the unit economics. You know, they figured out how to scale. They've figured out the customer you know, translating the, the technology or the business model innovation to a customer benefit. So I think it would be easy for listeners to think, oh, wow, these these companies, these CEOs have figured out so many of the things you just mentioned. They're raising this kind of growth capital that they're raising. What what an easy life they have. <laughs> Maybe if you could point out, I don't know, what what are perhaps a couple of the biggest challenges you find that that your CEOs wrestle with? So it's enormously hard to build businesses, especially, you know, through the past 20 years, there's been quite a bit of disruption. I mean, you know, we did go through that clean tech boom bust. We went through financial crisis. We went through now, you know, rising energy price, Ukraine war. We're now, you know, rising inflation. We now have war in Middle East. We have extraordinary volatility. So number one, it's really, really hard to scale companies through difficult periods. And I just have so much respect for the entrepreneurs who we back because they're tenacious, they're optimistic, and they're definitely making mistakes, as are we along the way, but hopefully learning from them and, and you know, and pivoting as they, as, they, as they need to. I think that the some of the mistakes that you see are this mismatch of applying the right resources at the right stage of growth and recognizing when you need to maybe you know, reset the management team because you're you've actually opened up the next leg of growth. Maybe it's the fifty to hundred million revenue ramp that you've landed. You know, you have proven unit economics, but now you need a new go-to-market and enterprise sales motion and team and expertise, or you need a more sophisticated CFO who's really built the scale muscle and managed costs. You know, in that phase, so that like matching the stage of the business to the to this to capabilities of the broader team around you. I've actually seen some really excellent examples where an entrepreneur has taken the company to that like their max efficient uh, frontier, and then put her you know his or her hand up to say, "Hey, I am going to support," and I'm really like excited to bring in that next leader. Would love to stay involved, perhaps on the board or you know heading up a pocket of the business, but kind of pulling in the next layer of talent that can really scale. We often see that the challenges companies have is when they don't do that, maybe ahead of the need, and that that gets them into trouble because they may be not able to move as fast as their their competitors. The flip side is the d- down throttling, which I think is really difficult. Again, the down throttling has been more in practice the past two years as businesses have had to readjust their cost basis to the economic situation, whether it's market dynamics, you know, if they've had you know slowing customer growth or you know, slowing or extending sales cycles, like throttling down to map to the revenue base and the cost base that they need. So that's more difficult. And that's certainly a very difficult skill to get it right on the upswing and on on the downdraft. And in these uncertain times, when there is this down throttling, you know, letting folks go and and slowing growth plans, I don't know, what do you what do you find are some of the most productive uses 
of that time when it's, look, it's, it's harder to raise money, it's harder to close sales, but you can't do nothing. I mean, clearly they're not, they're not doing nothing, yeah. but what do you find to be the most beneficial uses of those, of those, I guess, being yeah. perhaps yeah. months? Wow. Yeah. Well, so refining the core of like value proposition, maybe doing a little bit less, like being focused, maybe there's a customer segment that you really, um, you wanted to expand, but you found that like the product market fit. And so hone your economics on that and really get it humming so that it's solid. And maybe there's a question about the efficiency of R&D spend and how do you be very choosy on what R&D dollars you do invest in that next leg of growth. So I think actually Josh Reeves Augusto is a really excellent example of that. I think it's the horizons thinking of, you know, one level one, two, and three of the near term, the medium term, and the long-term investments that you need to make and make and, and help your board. And we have conversations because we usually sit in the boardroom um, about what choices we're making and what time frame that will play out. Our R&D efficiency measurement is one of the most difficult things, even for public companies or companies that have, you know, crossed the divide. And we try to encourage our companies to get really uh, fine-tuned on that early on. We also do see this, you know, the hunkering down is not always bad from a culture perspective. It actually enables as companies can maybe contract or or consolidate the kind of renewing that commitment to their mission, like what they were established to do, and actually finding real strength and energy in that opportunity. We recently hosted our System Positive Summit, which is effectively the convening for our the C-suite execs of all of our portfolio companies. And we had a session on um, building and defending culture and diversity in a downturn, which obviously was, you know, led by a combination of CEOs and chief people officers to talk about what it means when you're not always able to add new people, you know, and kind of fuel and growth through new energy and new talent. What are some of the explicit processes to focus on for career development and retention? And then for people digging deep to give as much or more than they've had to because of perhaps kind of the, you know, challenging times. And then there was also a CEO panel discussion regarding kind of doubling down on sustainability at the core of what a company does and how they operate. So enabling that to provide clarity and focus. We also work a lot with our companies to support their journeys to be leaders on their specific sustainability outcomes. Like what do they care about most and how does that translate into, into product and org? So, you know, looking at what we expect of our large public companies, how can we help them build that chipset early on, whether if it relates to approaches to responsible AI early on in their evolution, if it relates to how they build intentional cultures, how they expand inclusive teams, how they put in place alignment and incentives and and measurement systems, you know, at the at the exact level for it for the scaling, because we know they're gonna have to represent that on the other side as they potentially become, you know, listed standalone businesses. Uh-huh. And if you had to think about the companies that are the right stage, like on paper, let's say they're the, the right stage, but still the answer was no. And if you had to pick the top, I don't know, one or two reasons why they're not the right fit for you all, despite stage, despite the kind of Excel sheet uh, looking looking good, I don't know, what uh, mm-hmm. what comes to mind? So we use, again, the, the roadmap would qualify the, the investment thesis. It would say, in this pocket of the market, we're looking for a business that serves this, say it's the enterprise segment, or enters into the market through freemium, or we have like a very specific investment thesis on how to build the best 
business model, we call it business quality. And then what are the required management capabilities or the management quality um, that would fit? So there's a lot of that upward quality. We, yeah, we do research first. So we spend our time there. So we're, we're front-footed, not reactive to deal flow. So by the time we spend time with companies, it's less likely that it like landed on our plate and we're reacting. And it's more likely that we're vetting and things would fall out of the pipeline if, for example, they had high customer concentration or they didn't have repeatable and knowable unit economics, if it hadn't expanded into a new market, but we were being asked to pay for a new market expansion or a new product expansion, perhaps there could be a ding from the management team that we would reveal, you know, we'd uncover that meant there was a level of misalignment. So all sorts of things would, through our vetting process, as we move from, you know, a, a set of qualified business models to a set that we're going to go run at, there'll be drop-off and that drop-off will relate to the frameworks we use, as I mentioned, business quality, management quality, and then system positive, which is an analysis that we really embed up front into the roadmap. Of course, there's valuation and and during, you know, boom times, it's um, important that, you know, we've always tried to use the, you know, through cycle, you know, understanding of mean reversion and through cycle multiples and trying to even trim out some of the excessive highs um, that we saw in the past, you know, uh, several years to be more realistic. That won't always keep you out of trouble, but it will certainly at least enable you to have consistent conversations as you look at business models. So those would be some of the the aspects that would be we'd be toggling as companies move through the pipeline. Super useful. You just mentioned something about kind of mean reversion, excess multiples, et cetera. I think for some entrepreneurs listening, they may be wondering, what is Lila talking about? Um, can you make it, maybe give an example or go one level yeah. deeper into how that influences a, maybe a portfolio or evaluation uh, negotiation? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, when you're investing dollars, the view is you're investing in a, you know, a, an, an engine with a set of of leaders who will grow the enterprise value, and therefore there will be a point in time where it's you'd exit, and at Maybe it's because it's sold to a strategic. Maybe it's because the company is able to IPO. And in in those instances, there is actually a set of benchmarks that'll be used to value the company. Um, and those multiples, you can't escape. And so whereas in the early stages when the companies are private and maybe they have a high growth rate, it's possible to paint a future story sort of three years out, a year out, two, two years out or three years out in the future. We sit at growth, so usually it's closer in. By the time that you're exiting, you can't choose that you'd like the company to be valued at a higher multiple than what the market will bear. And so we actually think that's an important heritage and pedigree that comes from, you know, growing up, you know, alongside and and working closely with a public equity strategy is understanding, you know, what is what is the market value of this business through cycle. So again, it might not be that you get the timing, that you have to hit the timing right, but that you have to think about where those valuations would come out. And if there's a strategic acquirer, you know, what are the precedent transactions they're going to look at when they're buying a company? And what what would set you apart is you'd, if you had higher margins or a, or a higher growth rate, then you could be above. But you should know what the comparables are. And actually, I think that the market has become much more explicit about that. And certainly, I guess, rewarding companies who can very clearly say, as I put dollars into my engine, here's the growth and here's the profitability that comes out of my engine. And therefore, you know, this is a set of, of comparisons that you should hold us to in a five-year period. Yeah, I like that. You, you can't escape comps. <laughs> I 
I mean, at a certain point in time, you just can't. Like it's point. just like yeah. you just can't. You can't. Yeah. Um, but our hope is that again, you want you want companies that can be at the higher end and prove that they are some of the most advantaged businesses. I think that will again be a shown proven over time, and so you need to have milestones along the way. Great. Let me ask you one more question on uh, generation, and then we'll switch to the Lila portion of our of our podcast. So you mentioned earlier, look, investors make mistakes. I'm sorry, entrepreneurs make mistakes, but also investors do as well. I wonder if you can give it a couple of examples of, you don't need to name companies, obviously, but just kind of scenarios where you had a certain approach to it and it was it was the wrong one, right? I mean, obviously, this is about batting average, not about, about perfection. Yeah. So many, many years of having the opportunity to learn. And um, I mentioned co- cons- customer concentration because it's an easy one to have the first level of customer concentration learning, which is don't invest behind a company that relies on you know one or two or five large customers, because if any one of those falls out, you know, you could certainly be disrupted. And so that's an, that's an easy one to learn, but one that I did learn actually early on through uh, a different company in the in the ag uh, biological space that had a really important large customer that then changed tack and ultimately that affected the business overall. The second layer of it though is this channel concentration. So who do you rely on to get to market? Not just who's bu- who's your buyer, but sometimes that gets a little bit more um, nuanced. Of like, are you a product that gets specced in that then needs to be sold on, and therefore is the is the party that's um, required for even sometimes the systems integration that has to take place. Like you actually have to rely on a set of steps and so you don't control your own destiny and your channel to market. So I think that's a second learning. And then I think the third learning on on control your own destiny is is actually availability and access to capital. And so, you know, companies that don't have pathways to profitability on the current capital that they um, that oversee are at more risk and therefore, you know, you have to really be focused on how are they going to extend that cash runway or how are they going to get access to capital. And I think that is a tougher lesson to learn in, in the down markets and certainly one that, you know, you won't escape over time because it will it will always be a persistent, probably the, the biggest and most persistent challenges for the growth stage businesses. So many, many learnings. I think there's, I think there's, you know, capital intensity risks of, you know, early on, many people reflected that, if you were looking at climate investing back in 2006, 7, 8, that there were businesses that were putting steel on the ground and that was, you know, more CapEx intensive. We were probably, our business quality framework would and has kind of taken into consideration a skew towards more capital light businesses. Generation certainly believes that we need to decarbonize massive pockets of our economy that may indeed require more capital intensive business models. And so, in the last um, two years, has stood up a, a new platform called Just Climate that's doing climate-led investment focused on hard to decarbonize sectors. So, you know, it's just making sure that your strategy fits the business model and the the capital requirements of that business model. You know, again, our strategy focuses more on you know software tech-enabled solutions, and so we need to make sure that we don't inadvertently get sucked into high capital intensity businesses. Yeah, you have to you have to know your know your lane, know your thesis, and stick to it for sure. You, you mentioned just climate. I heard uh, Colin, your partner uh, there, talking about uh, we're talking about just climate, 
And I, I told him what a what an amazing, shocking thing it is that um, as part of that fund, I believe this is correct, that that 100% of the profit sharing, the, the, the carry, the promote, is also tied to, you know, climate or sustainability goals, not just, you know, IRR metrics, which, I mean, I know certain, certain fund managers do that for a portion, let's say, of a carry, but for all of it is pretty bold, you know? Well, I think for climate-led investment that is a pocket of the market and this is related to the, you know, to a just transition and a fair, you know, as we say, just climate affair and just climate transition, it requires innovation and um, how thinking about how capital markets can not just um, use old tool, you know, the old toolkit, but okay. actually understand how in kind of impact is integrated into traditional investment frameworks and and recognizing that we need to push and support broader models. And I think that's really exciting what the what the team is working on. Um, we certainly, again, share that heritage of deep research and road mapping, and now we can uh, leverage that into, you know, different business models. It wouldn't necessarily be our, you know, sweet spot, but certainly our fit for purpose with that team. Well, I, I was, I was certainly happy to come back from Cloud at Week and tell my ESG investing course at Duke, where, you know, where, where you and I first met many year, years ago at that, at that Creo of that, but to tell them. This is what's happening out there, right? Things like new tools in the toolkit with uh, with just with just climate. Okay, let's um, let's switch to the Lila portion here. So, Lila, tell us something that you strongly believe in, ideally outside of work as a you know a human being versus versus the title you you, you the hat you wear, but that influences kind of maybe how you build the culture uh, or think about your role. I'm going to go back to actually the early experience when I, I graduated from college and I actually had a Fulbright fellowship in Southern Chile and I was working on projects with community-based conservation for f- kind of forest, uh, reforestation. So the recognition that that if you integrated communities into environmental models, that that would deliver, you know, better support and scalability. And, and from there, you know, there was this journey of following the impact and scaling impact. And that led me Again, in hindsight, it all made perfect sense, but in a very circuitous journey, led me to do the job that I do today and have a passion for the forestry and, and ag sector. But I wrote my senior thesis on um, symbiotic relationships and that symbiosis, again, between, in this case, environmental and social, and that kind of view, which was informed by working actually as a researcher more in pockets of, of Latin America through college and observing nature. And I just like, there's just this, like the fundamental lessons from how organisms thrive and support and, and defend each other is extraordinary. And I think that like m- that model of symbiosis has been very consistent with now fast forward to something like system positive. I'm particularly interested, and this is just a, a passion for the the role and the opportunity for nature to help us solve some of the biggest problems we need to further invest in that and enable, you know, businesses to kind of, you know, support regenerative practices. That's why I kind of spent a lot of time again in that sector. And, um, but you can't leave people out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can totally relate. Two of my summers were spent in the rainforest of uh, Costa Rica and Panama. 
And uh, yeah, hard to ignore the interconnectedness of of what you what you see or or feel. You know, getting bit, stung. Yeah. Yep. With all that exists down there. How about uh, if you're giving advice to you know your younger self or emerging professionals, which I'm sure is is not uncommon for you? What kinds of practical advice do you give on you know being uh, happier, more effective on this career building, on this path of building a career of impact? So, so one which is a lesson I learned later, and I give this advice to people on my team, but I think my team is exceptionally good at this. And I wish I was as good as they were, but this, you know, how do you distill insight from information? So yeah. I think there's always a tendency early in your career to know everything and aggregate all the information and speak to every expert and try to put all those words on pages to prove that you know everything. And in fact, you know, you have to go through the learning journey to recognize that it's the insight, sort of the two or three things that matter off those pages and um, and that charts can can speak a million words and again, I, I, I've i learned from people that I work with who are exceptionally good at this. I wish I had sort of practiced that and made myself practice that early on. The piece of advice that I don't know if anyone ever gave me, but I ended up doing inadvertently was following that research, uh, research as a core way or methodology to build expertise such that then you build uh, a view of the world and then a set of deep relationships that can deliver value over a time. And so I think a research organization, again, Generation prioritizes this and it is practiced and we um, believe that research matters because it helps inform this, you know, the, the shifts that are taking place in the wor world is that, you know, picking a core area that you're passionate about means that you'll do your optimal work, you'll build the optimal relationships. And I think that's played out. This year, we released the um, seventh year of our sustainability trends report which is effectively the share out of yep. research across these sectors. In this case, it's oriented towards the climate transition. Justin Gillis is, uh, along with Al Gore and, and many others, um, really distilled the key insights so that we could talk about the shift taking place in energy, in buildings, in transportation, in land and ag, and in the financial uh, system that point to climate's move to the center stage in affecting you know, both global politics, but then also, I think, economic growth in in the climate transition. And so that's like just such a, you know, strong heritage that we can hopefully share out more and more uh, sector insights. And, you know, we're very excited to talk about our roadmaps. We welcome the opportunity to do roundtables, to deep dive into the roadmaps, and we're increasingly trying to share them out. I think the STR, as it's called, is the great kind of annual version, but we would like to be building relationships off these uh, very specific deep dives. I mentioned, you know, green data. I mentioned some of the work that we've done in sustainability and life sciences. You know, we've got an enormous amount of activity related to financial literacy and financial inclusion. So it's quite deep. And that's the best way for us to have meaningful dialogues because it's on, based on a core of, of research. I think in so many words, it's it's you all are you're being proactive versus reactive, right? Which can be thesis driven investment, or it can be so many other things in a, in a in a person's career or a business's strategy. That that um, data driven, research driven, proactive approach versus oh, who's knocking at my door today, right? Do I open the door and say yes and do a deal or or not, right? Correct. 
And I think then when you see what you're looking for, if you define what your invested thesis is, even if it hasn't yet, the business model hasn't yet matured or doesn't quite exist in the market, once it shows up, you've done the upfront work to say, well, that's it. That's the company that we think can really scale. You know, there's many examples where you do the research, but it actually takes a few years to map the opportunity set before it crystallizes. We recently invested in a company called Service Titan, which was actually off the back of many years of looking at the built environment and the role of, in this case, the trades tradespeople in being in the physical environment, whether it's in residential or commercial and industrial, to do work in whether it's energy efficiency, you know, retrofits, or just frontline work to change out HVAC or improve electrical plumbing, like that actually we need that that layer of the trades to be served the very best software, the same way that in the restaurant industry, you know, we wanted to back a company like a Toast that delivers the very best software to the small and micro restaurant owner, that these are enablement business models that can drive tons of um, efficiency, you know, and waste reduction, but also um, economic earnings growth. So actually broadening participation and economic growth, not just, you know, a trend towards maybe, you know, greater built environment or, you know, more efficient restaurant with restaurant with less food waste. Uh, okay, we have we have two more questions and we have four minutes. Can we do it? I think we can. I think we, we can. can. How about uh, tell us some habits or routines as as specific as you'd like that keep you healthy, sane, and focused? I am uh, a big fan of the walking meeting, and so I am a extreme extrovert. If people know me well. And therefore, grabbing people and, you know, talking and being outside is a big piece. And then, you know, there's a whole set of, you know, breathing and yoga. And, you know, I don't I don't actively meditate. I think for me, meditation is more my my running, my walking. And then a lot of, I'd say social time is actually very energizing for me. So that keeps me going. And do you, do you find the need to squeeze some of these things into a block, whatever, early morning or is it or is it lunch or how do you how do you fit these in a busy schedule well i'm a work you know we have london time frame or san francisco time frame so we we have a pretty structured schedule to optimize team time across the two offices huh. um, which means that depending where i'm sitting the blocks are different uh, but using a block usually in the middle of the day so that you can get like just get fresh air i just came back from a walking meeting with a colleague um, we are based here in san francisco right near the salesforce park which is one of the most beautiful green spaces in San Francisco, has gorgeous um, Araucaria trees, which are the trees from uh, the National Tree of uh, Chile, and um, highly recommend. Huh. I'll add it to the list. How about to the last one here? Can you recommend some podcasts or books or quotes or tools that you think listeners would find get actionable or uh, inspiring, perhaps? So there's there's tons of you know investing podcasts out there. I think O'Shaughnessy does a really good job with Invest Like the Best. It's good to listen to different types of business models that might not be the ones that you spend most time on, and so that's valuable. I do enjoy. I actually just recently had my uh, first sabbatical in my time at Generation, and so I read read a whole host of books. That was actually nice. one of my uh, core activities, and so. Um, finishing up All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr, which I think is an extraordinarily beautiful book. Um, and then I read some productivity books like The 4,000 Weeks by yeah. Berkman. And one. I thought it was a good one because I am I am like an efficiency machine. And yet it kind of shook me out of 
um, my normal habits of like the to-do list and cleaning out the inbox and having that as an objective. And so it made me think more holistically like about, yeah, what is a, a meaningful life? And then how do you control it versus letting uh, the inbox control you? So I think that was that was uh, interesting to read. I think there's also things like spiral dynamics and a whole host of to deeper research that relates to, yeah, symbiotic relationships that could be instructive to businesses more and more. Spiral spiral dynamics. Not tied for that right now, but go 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 with that, folks. Yeah. And your sabbatical. Can you like give us another bullet or two? Uh, on what they look like. Yeah, I I spent a fair amount of time outdoors. Um, uh, we we were out west for much of it, and I have two kids, a sixteen year old and a thirteen year old, two girls, and so and my husband and we got a chance to do things like floating down a river for a week or mm. you know camping. So that was you know a big part of it. Reading was a big part of it, mm. and um, certainly a lot of more physical exercise than I usually get. And not being on Zoom. Uh, for the summer was was a pretty uh, excellent opportunity. I would I would highly recommend. Actually, you know, the energy drain that comes from from looking at screens is something that I think we just need to knock off and and ask ourselves: Is this really? I mean, do we have to be on Zoom for this meeting? Mm, mm. Sometimes you do. It's perfectly fine. I do. Yeah, I'm gonna say I, we had to so I could riff off of your body language to record great yeah. every conversation. But you're right. I turned one of my meetings this afternoon into a walking uh, meeting uh, as well. Yeah. Hey, we're we're at time, Lila. Great stuff. Uh, we we're, we're thrilled to see Generation continue to grow uh, and expand the, the the strategies and the toolkit, and prove that uh, putting sustainability at the core, and uh, is also being a great fiduciary, a great manager of capital. Anyway, root for your success and your portfolio companies. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.